The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we just sang and expressed in a phrase what is nearly, I suppose not literally, but what is nearly unspeakable. Plan to save the world. And that you brought it to pass. You are carrying it forward. We are a part of it. We have heard of it. Most of us here are experiencing it. And we will see glory. And I pray, Lord, God, help us to understand that a little bit more and to marvel at it a little bit more this morning. And if there are some here who aren't experiencing it quite yet, would you bring them in and open their eyes and change eternity and save for them? The Lord, cause us to marvel along with the saints of old. Cause us to marvel at what you have done. And this morning in this passage that we have before us to I think initially I ask that you would help us to mourn at what we have done and then to marvel at what you have done. Marveling follows mourning. Marveling grows as mourning grows. It is a small thing to save a good people. It is a marvelous thing to save a bad people. And it is astounding to save us. But you have a plan and you have executed it and you are carrying it forward. Glory to your name. Help us to see that a little bit this morning, Lord, and to grow in worship, to grow in thanksgiving. Open our eyes that we would behold wonders in your word. These things are familiar to most of us, extremely familiar to most of us. Help us to see them again, to grow in thanksgiving and to to worship. To grow in joy and and rest and thanksgiving and, and just build your body up, Lord, I pray. So give us eyes. Shine light on your scripture. Help me to express clearly what's there and to help us to think clearly about what's there. Build up your people and honor the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning is the last Sunday before Christmas, and so to help turn our minds towards the celebration of Christ's coming, we are leaving for a moment our study through the book of Philippians. We're going to pick up, uh, we'll pick up with there later, but we're going to pick up God's Word in Genesis chapter 3, which on first take might be an odd passage for Christmas. It's one of the most important passages in all of the Bible, though. 
following the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, which obviously is where the Bible begins. First two chapters of Genesis explain and really emphasize a couple of great big points for us. Clarifies for us that there is only one true eternal God. He is triune in nature. We see the first inklings of that here in the very beginning of the Bible. He is triune. He is the one and only God, and he made absolutely everything that is, which includes us, and therefore has authority over absolutely everything, including us. He made it all from nothing, and he made it very good. The end of the creation account says, and he looked, and it was very good. All of the creation with man and woman in it and over it, all perfect, full of sweet life, exuberantly happy, holy, rightly ordered beneath God, it was right. And then comes our chapter, chapter 3, and it all falls apart. The world we know, not the world of chapters 1 and 2, but the world that we know comes into existence. The world that is not exuberantly happy and holy and full of sweet life and peace and rightly ordered beneath God, but is instead marked by pain and toil and hardship and confusion and alienation and separation and discord and disappointment and death. Our world. This world. This cursed world. And Genesis 3 explains how we got from that world to here. In that sense, it's a tragic chapter and hardly fits with Christmas. But in another sense, and this is why we're looking at it today, this, this chapter is also a chapter of amazing grace. You have to have eyes to see it, but there is grace all through Genesis chapter 3. Right in the middle of the curse, which is what kind of makes it astounding, there is grace and curse paired together. And so we're going to consider this morning both those things, grace and curse. We're going to consider them, I, th I think, soberly, but as we move through soberly, we'll move to, I hope, joyfully. Consider grace and curse soberly and joyfully, and perhaps we'll also consider it with, with a perspective that is properly shaped to understand God acting and still acting in grace towards a world like ours, towards people like us, towards you. What we won't be considering in detail, though, is the first seven verses of the chapter, which are very important. They detail the, the sin of Adam and Eve, the, the sin that causes the problem that we're going to look at and leads to the solution. But it's very important. One to seven, Satan comes, takes the form of a servant, and speaks to Eve and through her to Adam, and entices and lures, tempts, points them towards the only thing that God had forbidden them in all of the garden. This wonderful, beautiful, perfect environment. Everything theirs except this one thing, and Satan points them towards it and raises in their minds doubt, a doubt that we are all well acquainted with. The doubt that God actually is good, that he actually is right, and that he actually is for us. He invited them to consider he isn't, in fact, good, and he isn't, in fact, for you. 
In fact, you should rise up, throw him off, and become a god yourself. Rule your own life. Take charge. That would be better for you. And they bought it and died. That's what's already happened. They realized suddenly, when they ate of the fruit, they realized suddenly they were naked and they were ashamed. They had been naked and unashamed, and now they are naked and ashamed, and they realize it, and they start hiding. That's what's happened when we come to our passage in verse 8. So let me read Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. I'm going to read all the way through the rest of the chapter. And what we're looking at as we read this, again, the, the two things I'm going to develop here are curse and grace. So look for curse and look for grace. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Develop from this chapter in two points this following main idea. Here's my main point for this morning. God's grace has come in Jesus to relieve us from the curse. Chapter obviously is heavy on curse, but 
as I said, grace is all through it, and it points us towards Jesus, which is why we're talking about it today. God's grace in Jesus has come, come to relieve us from this curse. So I'm going to talk about curse and grace. Here's the first point. Because of our sin, God has laid a curse of judgment on all the world. Because of our sin, God has laid a curse of judgment on all the world. In verse 14, we get the first mention of the word curse. And then obviously the bulk of the passage is describing that curse. It's a judgment on the world. Curse is judgment, not, not in the sense of a swear word, not in the sense of like pronouncing a spell. When God pronounces a curse, he's issuing a judgment. And it falls on every part of the creation, and it's because of our sin. That's what verses 1 to 7 make very clear. Satan tempted, but that didn't cause the curse. When Adam, of course Eve, ate of the fruit, that's what brought it. It's because of our sin, mankind's sin. God has cursed everything. Verse 14, the Lord curses Satan, condemns him to lowliness and subjugation, to eating dust. That's a lowliness. Verse 15, then he declares that he will put enmity between Satan and between Eve and her offspring. So there's going to be this spiritual conflict, this, this war, if you will, forever and ever. We will have an enemy. All the descendants of Eve will have an enemy of our souls, a spiritual foe who is vicious and aggressive and cunning and bent on our destruction. And then to the people. And we should listen to this and weep. We should listen to this and weep. He brings curse against the very things that were blessings. Perhaps we might call these things the paths of life. If you think about what it is that God lays his hand of judgment on, they are the paths through which, along which, life was flowing. Childbirth. The physical bringing forth of life. Now it's going to be filled with pain and trouble, even death. Marriage. Relationship with her husband. At the end of verse 16, he says to Eve, and your desire shall be for your husband, which is not a good thing. It's the very same phrasing used from the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, where the Lord is talking to Cain about how Sin's desire will be for him. It desires to control him and, and overrule him and, and even to destroy him. That's the wording that he says. It's a, this is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Not as a loving leader, but as a, a ruler putting down a rebellion. Marriage was intended to be sweet. We read in chapter 2, it was wonderful, a, a joyous thing, and now it is a battle. Childbearing becomes painful and marriage becomes war. And for the man, verse 17, work becomes hard and increasingly frustrating and futile. Another of God's great provisions for life. In chapter 2, Adam plays in the garden and plucks all the fruit. It's easy. 
And now, cursed is the ground. And instead of fruit, he will have to sweat and pull out of the ground grain from amidst the thorns and the thistles that it's going to produce for him. But the sweat of his face, he will work and work and work to bring forth just enough provision to live on all the way along the way towards death because he's going to return back to the ground. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You were made from the earth and given life, and now life will be taken from you, and you will decay and become earth once again. It is the glory of man gone. And this explains all of the misery of this world. Sin has wrecked all that God provided to be blessing and life and joy. Every one of these paths along which we were at one point drinking in beauty and wonder now is marked with pain. Watching the TV show yesterday and said, Somebody was interviewing some expert about refugees in the world and strife that causes it and the conditions they live in. And he asked her, how many refugees are there and how many children are there? And she said, who can count them? But there are more than there ever have been. Who, who can count them? She threw out a number, I think, 50 million. Who knows? I show pictures and you see kids lying in tents in the middle of nowhere. And that's just a little, just a little sliver of what, what this is. What the world is now. 20 to 24 polishes off this bleak picture. God clothes them graciously, clothes them, but in garments that make them look like the beasts they have become. And he sends them out, away from life, out of the garden to work the land, deprived of intimate fellowship with him. This is the curse, and it is sad and bleak. This is what we are talking about when we sing, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. You know that song, Joy to the World. Far as pain in childbirth is found. Domestic violence and starvation and poverty and painful death is hidden behind that music and the frivolity of those lines. This is real, and it is awful, and it is on every page of every newspaper, every page of history, and on every page of your life. Why is this so? Many of us hop right to it, perhaps 
many of us used to and, and many in the world still do, because God is mean, because God is vindictive. That's, a, that, that's, that's exactly, preacher, that's exactly why I want nothing to do with this garbage. Most of the world hops right to that. very unfortunate because it doesn't deny the reality this still is and it leaves us unprepared to deal with it there's another reason that it is part of the reason that this is is that God in fact actually is righteous and just and must oppose any opposition to his honor any opposition to truth any rebellion he must oppose it but there is another way that we should think about to put it in a phrase, why is this? To put it in several phrases, think of it like this. So that by darkness we might see light. By hopelessness we might see hope. By pain we might see healing. What has happened here in the beginning of chapter 3 is that human beings and all of us today following in the footsteps of our, of our first father, Adam, all of us are born with this desire to say, no, I will be a god myself and I'm going to make up my own boat and head out from shore to conquer. And what this is, is, is God in the curse punching a hole in that boat. Not to sink it, but that as it takes on water, we would say, I need to turn back to the shore. Because this does not work. So that there is, in, why has God done this? Why has God cursed the world? In part because he is a just and righteous God and must rightly, thankfully, in goodness, defend his truth, defend himself, who is good and in part to make us aware of something. Curse is not foundational to God's nature. The point I'm making here is because of our sin, not because of God's nature. Because of our sin. That's the point I'm trying to emphasize here. God has set a curse on us because of our sin. It is not foundational to his nature. Think in this passage. Curse comes as God defends something. Up to this point, Adam and Eve exist in splendor, which is what God designed. God designed a world full of life without any wrong or any evil whatsoever. That's what He intended. That's what He planned. That's what He brought to pass. A world that teemed with energy, with light, and with beauty, and with joy, and with glory. I've just walked us through for a few minutes the curse. But now, lift up your eyes and see that before the curse, there was splendor. Because that's the proper atmosphere of God. That's the proper atmosphere of heaven. 
And when God created a world, he did so out of a desire to display, to reflect, really to share something marvelous himself. We easily leap to, that's the kind of God I don't want anything to do with. In fact, it's very exactly the God you want everything to do with. This God, the God who would make chapters 1 and chapters 2, chapter 2, who would make very good A God who existed forever past in perfection, who had no need, but out of pure optional, no need, no, no obligation, optional desire to bless, said, I will make and I will share. Very good. God in love decided to show His glory and to make people like Adam and Eve like Him with the same pieces inside of them that resonate with glory so that they could see and delight in forever and walk with in the cool of the day in a lush garden, in a perfect world, walk with Him and delight in Him and communicate with Him, hear from Him, know Him, love Him forever. God's plan was beautiful. This is the grace that sits behind the curse. It's the beginning of the story. It tells us something extremely important. When we consider curse and when we struggle through life, and we attempt to put back all of the pieces, put back together all the pieces, we attempt to plug the hole, and we're tempted to say, why has God done this? Where is God now? I don't want anything to do with a God who would leave me in this situation. To react in that way, this tells us, hold on a second. In the beginning, God made them male and female. One married to the other. And it was very good. This domestic violence is much more infuriating to him than it is to you. In fact, he's going to act to stop it. But he's using it now to wake you up. To wake you up in hope. To wake you up in hope to look not at the God of the curse, but the God who is behind the curse, the God of grace. That is the same God, you know. That is the same God. The God who curses is the God of grace. He made a world that was good. And then, even in the midst of curse, he brings more grace. Which takes us to the second point. Because of his good nature, God has extended his grace to the world 
far as this curse is found. Because of his good nature, God has extended his grace to the world far as this curse is found. So we pick right up with curse. saw some of the grace that precedes the grace that is the context into which the curse falls, but now we look at the, at the grace that comes right along with, even in the midst of. God has acted. This passage here, it sets a trajectory for us. God has acted, and it doesn't tell us everything that God's going to do. We, we know more of the story. It's not all here in chapter 3, but this chapter, it points us in a direction, and inclines us to think about and to look for and then to understand more of what God has done. We see here a pattern. This is how God deals with people even in the midst of curse. He deals with them in grace. That is, in favor and in blessing that is undeserved and unearned. Look again at at the very same events. God is omniscient. He knows exactly what happened in verses 1 to 7. Why does he come to the garden? If God is about curse, the one who sustains everything just by simple thought, you draw your breath by his will. You draw your next breath by your next breath your ne- by his will. Every single, he just says, done. And the story's over. Why does he come to the garden? If he wants to judge, he judges. He doesn't need to seek information. Why does he come to the garden? Why does this even happen, let alone why is it written down for us to read about? He comes to seek these people. And to make clear to them and to us, we don't seek him, we hide. First step, they hide. They hide hide their bodies, and then they hide themselves away from him. They hear him coming and run, and he pursues. Where are you? What's going on? Not because he needs to know, because we need to know. He pursues them in grace. He calls them out in grace, and then in grace curses their enemy. Indeed, as we said, it creates spiritual conflict, but also it makes clear how the conflict goes. Satan is beneath. He doesn't win. He takes our enemy and lays him down, subjugating him. And then, Grace, as he curses the paths of life, he doesn't shut those paths off. Pain in childbirth? Yes, but childbirth. Difficulty in marriage? Indeed, but marriage. Anybody who's ever been born, who's ever eaten, and has ever experienced any joy in any relationship has experienced the grace of God even woven into the middle of these curses. He didn't shut them off entirely. Even the death of man, then, is a strange grace to mankind. 
Look at the wording. Because he now knows good and evil, lest he reach out his hand and live forever. God ties now evil and malevolence to temporality. How many peoples and how many people in the world have given thanks at the death of the wicked? The death of an authority over them who was oppressing and hurting many. It is a good thing that Stalin is not immortal. Right? That's a strange grace. But it is a grace. In our fallen states, we will not live forever. If you have eyes to see it, there is undeserved mercy and favor and blessing from God right in the midst of the judgment all through this passage. But in particular, we have to look again at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, not they. God moves the language here to a particular seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. You see the picture here. One of these of Eve's seeds one of them in particular. Somebody will see the snake and move in hostility to kill it for us. Wounding, wounding this enemy's head, heal, while having the heel wounded in return, but to different effects. If that was all there was to read, that would be interesting but confusing. What is that about? It's about a man, one who as one of us would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, who will know this chapter personally, who will be an offspring of this woman who will live under this curse and will know the turmoil and the difficulty and the frustration and the pain of this world. Know the struggle of life who will be despised and rejected by mankind and even by God himself as the curse of God falls on him. You'll be cut off from the land of the living in death himself also. And will also crush the head of the serpent. What is that? Now, I, I understand what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm kind of belaboring this point, and most of you are saying, come on now, you know what this is about. So, that's what I'm doing. Can I get inside of my head? I'm inviting you to think it through. My tone here this morning has been slow and sober 
Because this is a chapter of weeping. There is little to get delighted about and excited about in this chapter. It is a chapter that should punch us and make us sit and say, oh! Because running through our minds should be terrible things. If you're, if you're alive and have any feeling in you and, and, and have lived very long at all in this world, this chapter should be a punch in the gut. And I'm inviting you to think it all through and to say, oh, this, what is he doing with this on Christmas? It's totally ruined the mood. You know? And maybe in that place you'll finally understand Christmas. Do you know what I mean by that? You haven't understood Christmas until you've looked at life and thought, what? Or, what? And then you thought, oh my word, that we could hold God in our hands. That in the midst of this, he would say, but I am so much a God of glorious, delighted grace that even in the midst of defending my honor, which I must because I am righteous and just, but I am also a God of grace. And right, even right in the middle of that, I'm going to raise up a seed from you who's going to crush this enemy who will bear my curse more than you ever will, and out of that will give you life again, will open up the paths of blessing that I always meant and still mean to flow freely and wonderfully and wide and deep and high and long. Such is my love for you that right in the middle of this, I will mention Christmas to you and the cross. There's going to be one born of a woman who will have his heel punctured by the fangs of the serpent, but who will deliver you. You don't understand Christmas as long as it's locked up in beautiful twinkling lights and precious quiet moments. Christmas only makes sense if there's blood in it. The blood of birth and the blood of death. So maybe for you today, you can look at this and say, there is a God who is really, really, really serious about his nature, his character, his law, justice, and righteousness. He condemns the whole world to death on a single sin. And that same God is really, really, really serious about making the world clean and right, spreading grace, wiping clean the whole world far as the curse is found. Equally serious about both. 
Do not despise either of them. Do not think, I have no problem here. And do not think, I want nothing to do with him. But realize, in fact, you have a tremendous problem and a tremendous Savior. And that you cannot avoid either. You get one and you can gloriously have the other. God said that He would send one born of a woman, the seed of Eve, the mother of the living. This is what we're talking about at Christmas. God the Son, the second person of the triune one God, came to earth as we said and and sang about, setting aside His right to be regarded as the Almighty. And He became the lowly. And he did that to wage war. He did that to hunt down a serpent and to kill it for you. He came to earth born as a human being, God in flesh, gloriously impossible. He had to become a man because he had to be cursed. He had to bear this curse all the way to the end and pay it off in full. Which means he had to be a man and also means he had to be God to pay it off in full. For others, not himself, he's sinless. He became a man grew up a baby who became a boy, who became a teenager, who became an adult. Suffering under the curse all the way through, experiencing all of this difficulty. He's no stranger to anything you've faced. He knows it. And despised and rejected by the same kind of people who always have despised and rejected God and His work. Us. He went to the cross where ironically he was despised and rejected by God. God hung on him all of his wrath. Hung him up on the cross and hung on him the wrath of God in your place if you believe. All who believe in your place, all of you in your place, if you believe. God in grace provided a Savior Speaking of him even in the moment when he provided the curse. Have you realized the weight, the impossibility of
I don't know who I don't know who I'm talking to, but there are some of us here that are remarkably hard and arrogant. Perhaps behind a smile, you have decided that you are sufficient and you do not need this. My hope is that God will lay on you His curse heavily. Not because I don't like you. I don't even know you. Probably. And not because God is is mean and vindictive, but my hope is that He would lay on you the weight of this curse that you might realize, that you might be broken and realize, I cannot... I cannot run with the horses. I cannot stand under the mountain. I cannot. I am weak and fallen and frail. May He land on you the weight of this curse so heavily that you realize I cannot. The boat is hold. I must return. You will find, if you do, a God of tremendous grace who extends even to you as far as you have run, as passionately as you have resisted Him, even to you, He extends a hand of grace and will save you when you turn and ask. So my hope is that if that's you, that you would realize that that's you and that you would turn and ask, God save me, a sinner. I need you, a Savior. And most of us here, I know that most of us here, may you see Christmas for what it is. The grace of of an amazing God who sends one to save you from that which comes from this. To save you from that and to save you from your own fallen heart wandering as it is. He's a God of grace to you, Christian. It is wonderful. It is wonderful. It really is. The music is, I think. <laughs> it is wonderful. You get to experience now, even in the midst of this curse, the grace of God that even now, while you walk the paths of life under their hardships, you walk them with Him who says, I walk with you, I will never abandon you, and I give you grace to press all the way home. I will remove this all and make the world clean with you and for you. It is a marvelous thing. 
you aren't a Christian, become one for your own good. To the praise of God, for your own good. To the praise of God, for your own good. He stands ready to save you. And if you are a Christian, oh, God's grace in Jesus has come to relieve you from this curse. Bless God. May it be a merry Christmas to you. Let me pray. Lord, would you make Christmas merry for us? As we lift up our eyes beyond the medial joys of, of family and rest and see the glory of your grace poured out on us, sent in Christ to save, open our eyes and help us to see it. And Lord, perhaps there are some here who don't know you but will meet you today. Open their eyes. Meet them. Pursue them as they run. Question them that they might be revealed to themselves. Show them their trouble and show them their sin and show them your answer. Come, Lord, I pray. Meet your people to bless. Come to save. Be honored here in our midst. We love you. We say thank you. You're kind. You're gracious. You're abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.